My name is John Redmond from First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas, and I want to thank you for joining us today on Peace by Believing. Today, we're going to be listening to a sermon that I preached back in September on the very first day of the NFL season. It was opening Sunday, and so I used that as part of my introduction to lead into a sermon on prayer, and I hope this sermon will be a real blessing to you today. For those of us who are sports fans, today is a special day because it is opening day of the NFL season. And I want to go ahead and say this while I can. The Houston Texans are undefeated right now. Undefeated. And so is, uh, so is Dallas. And so we'll see how long that lasts for both of those teams. But it's a new season. And there's always something exciting about a brand new season. Tonight at 6.30, we're going to have our very first prayer and praise service. And I believe that tonight could be. Now, I don't know that it will be. That's up to God. But I believe tonight could be a new season in our church as we make a fresh emphasis on prayer. And so I am probably more excited about these Sunday night prayer and praise services than I have been about anything we've done around here in a long, long time. And so the emphasis this morning, the emphasis this night, and the emphasis for these Sunday nights for the, uh, up until the holidays is going to be on prayer. And what I want to do this morning is begin by giving two quotes on prayer that I found very interesting in preparing for this sermon. The first one was given by a man named Matthew Henry, who was a minister. He lived a long time ago in England. And Matthew Henry said this. He said, whenever God intends to have great mercy for his people, he first of all sets them praying. Now, look at that and think about what he's saying. When God intends great mercy for his people. In other words, when God is going to do something special in a Christian's life, in a church's life, in a family's life, God always begins that process by setting that person or that church or that family to a special time of prayer. Prayer always precedes an outpouring of God's Spirit. And then the second quote, I don't know who came up with this, who said it first. I've heard it by different people and read it through the years, but it's so very good. Here's what it says. Much prayer equals much power. Little prayer results in little power. No prayer, no prayer means no power. Now think about that for your life as an individual, for our church. If we are a church where there is much prayer, we're going to be a church that experiences much of the power of God on our lives. That's true for you as an individual. If your life is characterized by much prayer, you're going to have the touch of God, the favor of God, the power of God on your life. We read in the New Testament that men like Peter and Paul had the power of God so much on their life. For example, I'm thinking about Peter that he had the power of God in his life in such a way that when he would walk by, there was power in his shadow. So much so that many people came to get within his shadow hoping to be healed. 
Paul, the apostle, had so much of the power of God on his life that if he just gave somebody a a handkerchief or, or something that had been on his body, like he just handed it to them, there was a transfer of power because the power of God had been so real in his life. And both these men were men of prayer. And so if we have much prayer, much power, little prayer, little power, no prayer, no power. That's true for our church. If we're a church that says, you know, we believe in prayer, but we don't do a lot of it. We do a little bit of it. Well, we're going to be a church that has a little power of God. But if we have much prayer, we're going to have much power. All of that to say, as you study the Bible, as you study church history for the last 2,000 years, there seems to be a clear pattern, and it is this. When God's people pray, things happen. When God's people pray, things happen. And so if you'll open your Bibles today to the book of Acts, chapter number 12, this is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. And several weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago, when I knew that I would be preaching this morning on the Sunday morning before we begin our prayer service tonight, there was no question in my mind this was the passage of Scripture that I wanted to deal with. It's the story of Simon Peter being arrested there in Jerusalem because of his witness for Jesus Christ, being put in the city jail, being chained to soldiers, guarded by other soldiers. And while he was in this dire situation, the church began to pray for him, to pray for his release to pray that he would not be executed, God answered that prayer and Peter was set free. Let's get a little background. Acts chapter 12 and verse number 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. You remember, Peter... James and John were in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Now, James is the first of those disciples to be killed for his faith. And because Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. And so when Herod had James killed and the Jews loved that, he said, man, I'll have Peter killed and I'll even be more popular. So he took Peter and he put him in the city jail and he said to himself, I can't have him killed during this Jewish feast. So when the feast is over, I'll bring Peter out of jail and we'll kill him just like we killed James. Now, in verse number 5, it says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And so as Peter is in prison... What are, the, what are the Christians doing? They're praying for him. God, be merciful. God, don't let him be executed. God, we need a miracle. Supernaturally, get him out of this horrible, horrible situation. And so as the church began to pray, things began to happen in this situation. And I want to just mention some of them today. First of all, what happens when we pray? What's going to happen tonight When we come together at 6.30 for a time in a season of corporate prayer, what can we expect to happen in a setting like that? Well, first of all, we develop a spirit of unity, of oneness, and togetherness. 
Anytime we pray together, whether you're praying with a friend at work, whether you're praying with a spouse or your entire family, whether you're praying with your connection group, Sunday school class here, or whether the whole church comes together to pray, when you pray with people, there's something about that that knits your heart together. Now, I'm thankful here at First Baptist, we already have a, a spirit of unity and love, and there are no factions or you know, schisms within the church or groups that this group doesn't like this group. I don't sense any of that, and we thank God for that. But as we pray, there's even going to be more unity, oneness, and togetherness because that's what happened here. The church was, was praying together. Now, a second thing that happens when we come together for prayer, not only do we experience that togetherness, but also we immediately experience peace. Now, you've experienced this in your life. You've had a problem, and you've prayed about that, and maybe the situation didn't change immediately. Maybe nothing changed, but in your heart, you began to have peace. Why? Because when we pray, what are we doing? We're putting into God's hands the things that concern us, the things that weigh us down, the things that keep us awake at night. The things that burden us and can keep us in bondage, we're transferring that to God. And when we do, we immediately begin to experience peace. Now, as Peter is in this prison, it said back in verse 4 that there, are four, there were four squads of soldiers who were guarding Peter. Now, these squads were made up of four soldiers each. And so there were 16 soldiers who had been assigned to guard Peter, and they were on a rotating shift. Four at a time were guarding him. Two of those soldiers would have been in the prison cell with Peter, and the, his two hands would have been chained to them. So he's chained to two soldiers, and just outside the cell... Two other soldiers are guarding it so that there's no way he could get out and there's no way that anybody could come in. So he's in a, a dire strait here. And in verse number 6, it says, And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the doors were keeping the prison. And so Peter, in this horrible situation, chained to these soldiers, can't get out. The Bible says that he fell asleep. Now, what do we know about sleep? We know that in order to fall asleep, you have to have a certain amount of relaxation and peace. This is before the days of Ambien. And so Peter wasn't having any help drifting off to sleep. It is somehow as he's in this cell, he relaxes enough in his mind that he is able to drift off to sleep. Now, I believe, I can't prove it, but I believe that this is the case, that there's a direct connection between Peter's peace and his ability to sleep and the fact that the church was praying for him. Again, nothing had changed in Peter's situation or circumstance except he had this great peace in his life. And I believe there's a, there's a connection there. And so when we pray, we immediately begin to experience peace. And the third thing, thing that happens when the church prays. Now remember, by church, I'm not talking about the buildings. The buildings can't pray. I'm talking about the people. In the New Testament, the church is the people. It's the called out ones. It's the followers of Jesus. Look at the point number three. This is a long point, but I couldn't think of any way to say it any better. When, when the church prays, we put ourselves in position to experience an outpouring of the power of God 
that liberates those who are in bondage and surprises even the most spiritually mature among us. Now that's a, that's a mouthful, I'll grant you that. Let's just break that down. When we pray, what happens? We put ourselves in position to experience an outpouring of the power of God that first of all liberates those who are in bondage. As we're about to see in response to these people's prayer, these Christians' prayers, Peter was liberated from this prison cell. I wonder today, have no way of knowing, but I wonder today how many people, even in this service, are in bondage to something. You're not chained with handcuffs, but in your spirit and in your mind, there is a heaviness about you. There is a bondage. For some of you, that might be guilt over something in the past. For others here today, it could be worry or stress or anxiety. Those feelings of being overwhelmed, that can be a bondage. For others here today, it could be discouragement. For some, it could be outright depression. For some, it could be hopelessness. For some, it could be the lack of joy or the lack of peace. But it's something negative happening in your mind and in your heart. And so we could say you're, you're bound. You're in bondage to that. You wake up with it. You go through the day with it. You go to bed at night with it. You're not free. You're not joyful. You're not happy. Wouldn't it be amazing this morning, even in the preaching of this sermon, even in the teaching of God's Word, before we even get into the prayer service tonight, wouldn't it be wonderful in this service today if handcuffs began to be broken, if yokes began to be broken, if burdens began to be lifted, if spirits began to be refreshed, if, if hearts began to be set free, and you leave here in a few minutes and you say, you know what, I came to church and just in the preaching and teaching of God's Word, it's like God did something in my heart and in my mind to set me free. It's like God helped me to transfer that burden off of me and onto Him. And in doing that, He gave me peace, and now I have been liberated. But not only when there's a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit are we liberated, but even the most spiritually mature among us, even somebody like Brother Hoyt Roberts, who 90 years of age, career missionary, devoted his life to serving the Lord, has seen miracle on top of miracle on the mission field. But I believe if God would send a fresh outpouring of His Spirit in our midst here today, that even someone as spiritually mature as Brother Hoyt, he would say, this is amazing to me. This is surprising to me. I haven't seen anything quite like this, not even on the mission field. Now, it's interesting. When the church was praying for Peter, they were surprised at what God did. Now, look down in verse number 7. Now, behold, the Bible says, an angel of the Lord stood by Peter, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. He's liberated. Then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know what was uh, done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Peter just thought this was some kind of a far out dream he was having. When they were past the first and second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city which opened to them of its own accord. So this gate that would have prevented Peter from being completely free, now it just opened of its own accord. We know that God opened that. And they went out and went down one street. And immediately the angel departed from him. 
In other words, the angel knew that Peter no longer needed him. He had gotten him out of the prison. He had gotten him through the guard post. He had gotten him. Now the gates opened up. And so Peter can be okay without the angel now. In verse 11, and when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Now, Mary evidently had a fairly large house there in Jerusalem. Her son was John Mark, who had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And he went on to write the Gospel of Mark. And so, this is the Mary that is being described here. So, the church is in Mary's house, and they are praying for Peter's release. And Peter knew they would be there, so that's where he went. Verse 13, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. In other words, she saw Peter, and she was so excited, she forgot to let him in. Verse 15, but they said to her, so she goes back to the room, the living room or wherever all these people are praying, and she goes in there and says, Peter is at the front door. Verse 15, they said to her, you are beside yourself. In other words, they said, there's no way Peter's at the front door. We're praying for him to be released, but there's no way that he could really be released. Peter's in prison. Think about what is happening here. When they heard that he had been set free from prison, they didn't even believe it. Because even though they were praying for his release, when it happened, they thought it was good to be true. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. The Jews had a superstition that everybody had a guardian angel. Now that part I believe is true from something Jesus taught in the Gospel of Matthew. I believe I have at least one, maybe multiple guardian angels, and I believe you do too. But the Jews believed that each person had one guardian angel... And that that angel took the physical form and appearance of the person that he was guarding. And so that when that angel appeared visibly, like Peter's angel would look like Peter, or my angel would look like me. And so they said, that must be Peter's angel. You're having an illusion. It's not really Peter. Verse 16, now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. He went down from Judea to Caesarea and he stayed there. And so the church is praying here in Mary's house, Lord, be merciful to Peter. Lord, don't let happen to Peter what happened to James. God, I know he's in that cell and he's being guarded by four soldiers chained to two of them. God, unless you do something, there's no hope for Peter. This is an impossible situation, God. We don't have the clout. We don't have the power. We can't get him out. But God, we're praying that you will. We know nothing is impossible with you. Please, God, do a miracle. Please, God, send an angel. Please, God, somehow, supernaturally, get Peter out of that prison. And in response to those prayers, God did what they asked him to do. God set Peter free. He was liberated, and they were surprised. Remember what I said a moment ago? When the the church prays, 
things happen. Say that with me. When the church prays, things happen. And it certainly happened in Peter's case. Now, turn back to Acts chapter 2. This is one of the great chapters in all the Bible. Acts chapter 2 is the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 is where we read about 3,000 people being saved and baptized. Acts chapter 2 is where, where we read about miracles happening that had never happened before. And look in Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And so the Christians, the early Christians, were of one mind, one heart, and one spirit. But not only that, they were all in the same place. Now again, the important thing is not so much the place. In Acts 12, they were in Mary's house, but that was a church meeting. Here, they're in the upper room in Jerusalem, but that was the church meeting. So they were together, and suddenly, the Bible says, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. What would you think right now if a 15 to 20 or 30 mile per hour wind began to blow through this room right now? You'd probably think Hurricane Florence got off track. And it was headed to the Carolinas and it came to the Houston area. But what if it was God? What if in the middle of my preaching this sermon this morning, there began to be a 15 to 20 mile per hour wind? And you knew it wasn't a hurricane. And you knew it wasn't the air conditioning. You knew it was something unexplainable and supernatural. Well, that's what happened. I'm not saying it was 20. I don't know how long, it, how strong that wind was. But it was strong enough that it's not, it's not described as a movement of air or even a breeze. It says a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so when the Spirit came down, these early Christians now, they're speaking in languages they've never learned. They're speaking maybe in Egyptian. They're speaking maybe in the Ethiopian language. They're speaking maybe the Syrian dialect. They're speaking languages they've never heard. Why is this important? Because at Pentecost, Jewish people would have come from all over the known world to be in Jerusalem. So here all these devout Jews in Jerusalem for this particular feast. They're not saved. They don't know anything about Jesus. They've never heard about His death and His resurrection. But at Pentecost, these disciples began to speak. Had they only spoken in Hebrew or Aramaic and Greek, only those who spoke those languages could have understood. But now they're speaking languages they've never heard so that everyone can hear the gospel in his own language. And people are saved in large, large numbers. And so we read that and we think, man... The coming of the Holy Spirit. How amazing is that? But notice again back in verse 1. It says they were all with one accord and in one place. There's something about the church coming together for corporate prayer. If you go back in chapter number 1, you see the same thing happening. This is immediately after the ascension, right after Jesus went back to heaven. We read that those early Christians went back to Jerusalem. They went back to the same upper room where Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper, where they had the Last Supper. There they are, verse 13 of chapter 1. When they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. And it lists out all the names of the disciples. And in verse 14, they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Don't miss this. Before that rushing mighty wind, 
blew through where these disciples were in Jerusalem. Before the Holy Spirit came down in this this unbelievable way, before people began speaking in languages they had never learned, before thousands of people got saved, what was happening with the Christians? What was the church doing in Jerusalem? They were together. They were in the upper room. They were of one mind. They were of one spirit. They were together, and they were praying. And they were saying, God, we need you. We're praying for a fresh moving of your spirit. God, all these people down here that don't know about Jesus, they need to be saved. We don't know how to communicate with them. And God basically said, you don't know how, but I know how. I'm going to enable you to speak languages you've never learned. And so the day of Pentecost came. But before the Holy Spirit came, what I'm wanting you to see is the people were praying. Prayer always precedes a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God. Well, we're going to have to stop right there for today because we're out of time. But what I was trying to communicate in that message is it seems like prayer always precedes a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit on our lives. That's true individually and that's true in our churches. I encourage you, look at your life and ask yourself, are you really a person of prayer? And if not, I encourage you to make prayer a bigger priority in your life and watch what God might do. Thanks for joining us today and God bless.